Chapter Eleven of the Flying Inn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Flying Inn by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter Eleven: Vegetarianism in the Drawing Room. The company that assembled to listen to the prophet of the moon on the next occasion of his delivering any formal address was much more select than the comparatively mixed and middle-class society of the simple souls. Miss Browning and her sister, Mrs. Mackintosh, were indeed present, for Lord Ivywood had practically engaged them both as private secretaries and kept them pretty busy, too. There was also Mr. Levison, because Lord Ivywood believed in his organizing power, and also Mr. Hibbs, because Mr. Leverson believed in his political judgment, whenever he could discover what it was. Mr. Levison had straight, dark hair and looked nervous. Mr. Hibbs had straight, fair hair and also looked nervous. But the rest of the company were more of Ivywood's own world, or the world of high finance with which it mixes both here and on the continent. Lord Ivywood welcomed, with something approaching to warmth, a distinguished foreign diplomatist, who was indeed none other than the silent German representative who had sat beside him in that last conference on the island of the Olives. Dr. Gluck was no longer in his quiet black suit, but wore an ornate diplomatic uniform with a sword and Prussian, Austrian, or Turkish orders, for he was going on from Ivywood to a function at court. But his curl of red lips, his screw of black moustache, and his unanswering almond eyes had no more changed than the face of a wax figure in a barber's shop window. The prophet had also effected an improvement in his dress. When he had orated on the sands, his costume, except for the fez, was the shabby but respectable costume of any rather unsuccessful English clerk. But now that he had come among aristocrats who petted their souls as they did their senses, there must be no such incongruity. He must be a proper, fresh-picked oriental tulip or lotus. So, he wore long, flowing robes of white, relieved here and there by flame-colored threads of tracery, and round his head was a turban of a kind of pale golden green. He had to look as if he had come flying across Europe on the magic carpet, or fallen a moment before from his paradise in the moon. The ladies of Lord Ivywood's world were much as we have already found them. Lady Enid Wimpole still overwhelmed her earnest and timid face with a tremendous costume that was more like a procession than a dress. It looked rather like the funeral procession of Aubrey Beardsley. Lady Joan Brett still looked like a very beautiful Spaniard with no illusions left about her castle in Spain. The large and resolute lady who had refused to ask any questions at Misaizra's earlier lecture, and who was known as Lady Crump, the distinguished feminist, still had the air of being so full and bursting with questions fatal to man as to have passed the speaking and reached the speechless stage of hostility. Throughout the proceedings she contributed nothing but bursting silence and a malevolent eye. And old Lady Ivywood, under the oldest and finest lace and the oldest and finest manners, had a look like death on her, which can often be seen in the parents of pure intellectuals. 
She had that face of a lost mother that is more pathetic than the face of a lost child. "'And what are you going to delight us with today?' Lady Enid was asking of the prophet. "'My lecture,' answered Misysra gravely, "'is on the pig.' It was part of a simplicity really respectable in him that he never saw any incongruity in the arbitrary and isolated texts or symbols out of which he spun his thousand insane theories. Lady Enid endured the impact of this singular subject for debate without losing that expression of wistful sweetness which she wore on principle when talking to such people. "'The pig, he is a large subject,' continued the prophet, making curves in the air, as if embracing some particularly prized specimen. He includes many subjects. It is to me very strange that the Christians should so laugh and be surprised because we hold ourselves to be defiled by pork, we and also another of the peoples of the book. But surely you Christians yourselves consider the pig as a manner of pollution, since it is your most usual expression of your despising, of your very great dislike. You say swine, my dear lady. You do not say animals far more unpopular, such as the alligator. I see, said the lady. How wonderful! If you are annoyed, went on the encouraged and excited gentleman, if you are annoyed with anyone, with a, what you say, a lady's maid, you do not say to her horse. You do not say to her camel. Ah, no! said Lady Enid earnestly. Pig of a lady's maid, you say in your colloquial English, continued the prophet triumphantly. And yet, this great and awful pig, this monster whose very name, when whispered, you think will wither all your enemies, you allow, my dear lady, to approach yet closer to you. You incorporate this great pig in the substance of your own person." Lady Enid Wimpole was looking a little dazed at last, at this description of her habits, and Joan gave Lord Ivywood a hint that the lecturer had better be transferred to his legitimate sphere of lecturing. Ivywood led the way into a larger room that was full of ranked chairs, with a sort of lectern at the other end, and flanked on all four sides, with tables laden with all kinds of refreshments. It was typical of the strange, half-fictitious enthusiasm and curiosity of that world, that one long table was set out entirely with vegetarian foods, especially of an eastern sort, like a table spread in the desert for a rather fastidious Indian hermit, but that tables covered with game patties, lobster and champagne, were equally provided, and very much more frequented. Even Mr. Hibbs, who would honestly have thought entering a public-house more disgraceful than entering a brothel, could not connect any conception of disgrace with Lord Ivywood's champagne. For the purpose of the lecture was not wholly devoted to the great and awful pig, and the purpose of the meeting even less. Lord Ivywood, the white furnace of whose mind was always full of new fancies hardening into ambitions, wanted to have a debate on the diet of East and West, and felt that Miss Istra might very appropriately open with an account of the Moslem veto on pork, or other coarse forms of flesh food. He reserved it to himself to speak second. The prophet began, indeed, with some of his dizziest flights. He informed the company that they, the English, 
had always gone in hidden terror and loathing of the pig as a sacred symbol of evil he proved it by the common english custom of drawing a pig with one's eyes shut lady joan smiled and yet she asked herself in a doubt that had been darkening round her about many modern things lately whether it was really much more fanciful than many things the scientists told her as the traces of marriage by capture which they found in that ornamental and even frivolous being the best man he said that the dawn of greater enlightenment is shown in the use of the word gammon which still expresses disgust at the porcine image but no longer fear of it but rather a rational disdain and disbelief roley said the prophet solemnly and then after a long pause holy gammon and spinach lady joan smiled again but again asked herself if it was much more far-fetched than a history book she had read which proved the unpopularity of catholicism in tudor times from the word hocus-pocus he got into a most amazing labyrinth of philology between the red primeval sins of the first pages of genesis and the common english word ham but again joan wondered whether it was much wilder than the other things she had heard said about primitive man by people who had never seen him he suggested that the irish were set to keep pigs because they were a low and defiled caste and the serfs of the pig scorning saxon and joan thought it was about as sensible as what the dear old archdeacon had said about ireland years ago which had caused an irishman of her acquaintance to play the shan van vaux and then smash the piano joan brett had been thoughtful for the last few days it was partly due to the scene in the turret where she had struck a sensitive and artistic side of philip ivywood she had never seen before and partly to disturbing news of her mother's health which though not menacing made her feel hypothetically how isolated she was in the world on all previous occasions she had merely enjoyed the mad lecturer now at the reading desk to-day she felt a strange desire to analyze him and imagine how a man could be so connected and so convinced and yet so wildly wide of the mark as she listened carefully looking at the hands in her lap she began to think she understood the lecturer did really try to prove that the porcine image had never been used in english history or literature except in contempt and the lecturer really did know a very great deal about english history and literature much more than she did much more than the aristocrats round her did but she noticed that in every case what he knew was a fragmentary fact in every case what he did not know was the truth behind the fact what he did not know was the atmosphere what he did not know was the tradition she found herself ticking off the cases like counts in an indictment misysra ammon knew what next to none of the english present knew that richard the third was called a boar by an eighteenth-century poet and a hog by a fifteenth-century poet what he did not know was the habit of sport and of heraldry he did not know what joan knew instantly though she had never thought of it before in her life that beasts courageous and hard to kill are noble beasts by the law of chivalry therefore the boar was a noble beast and a common crest for great captains 
Miss Isra tried to show that Richard had only been called a pig after he was cold pork at Bosworth. Miss Isra Ammon knew, what next to none of the English present knew, that there never was such a person as Lord Bacon. The phrase is a falsification of what should be Lord Verulam or Lord St. Albans. What he did not know was exactly what Joan did know, though it had never crossed her mind till that moment, that when all is said and done, a title is a sort of joke, while a surname is a serious thing. Bacon was a gentleman, and his name was Bacon, whatever titles he took. But Miss Isra seriously tried to prove that Bacon was a term of abuse applied to him during his unpopularity, or after his fall. Miss Isra Ammon knew, what next to none of the English present knew, that the poet Shelley had a friend called Hogg, who treated him on one occasion with grave treachery. He instantly tried to prove that the man was only called Hogg because he had treated Shelley with grave treachery, and he actually adduced the fact that another poet, practically contemporary, was called Hogg as completing the connection with Shelley. What he did not know was just what Joan had always known without knowing it, the kind of people concerned, the traditions of aristocrats like the Shelleys, or of borderers like the Ettrick Shepherd. The lecturer concluded with a passage of impenetrable darkness about pig iron and pigs of lead, which Joan did not even venture to understand. She could only say that if it did not mean that some day our diet might become so refined that we ate lead and iron, she could form no fancy of what it did mean. Can Philip Ivywood believe this kind of thing? She asked herself, and even as she did so, Philip Ivywood rose. He had, as Pitt and Gladstone had, an impromptu classicism of diction, his words wheeling and deploying into their proper places like a well-disciplined army in its swiftest advance. And it was not long before Joan perceived that the last phase of the picture, obscure and monstrous as it seemed, gave Ivywood exactly the opening he wanted. Indeed, she felt, no doubt, that he had arranged for it beforehand. "'It is within my memory,' said Lord Ivywood, "'though it need in no case have encumbered yours, "'that when it was my duty to precede the admired lecturer, "'whom I now feel it a privilege even to follow, "'I submitted a suggestion which, however simple, "'would appear to many paradoxical.' I affirmed or implied the view that the religion of Mahomet was, in a peculiar sense, a religion of progress. This is so contrary, not only to historical convention, but to common platitude, that I shall find no ground either of surprise or censure if it takes a perceptible time before it sinks into the mind of the English public. But I think, ladies and gentlemen, that this period is notably abbreviated by the remarkable exposition which we have heard to-day. For this question of the attitude of Islam toward food affords as excellent an example of its special mode of progressive purification as the more popular example of its attitude toward drink, for it illustrates that principle which I have ventured to call the principle of the crescent the principle of perpetual growth toward an implied and infinite perfection. The great religion of Islam does not of itself forbid the eating of flesh foods, but, in accordance with that principle of growth, which is its life, 
it has pointed the way to a perfection not yet perhaps fully attainable by our nature it has taken a plain and strong example of the dangers of meat-eating and hung up the repellent carcass as a warning and a sign in the gradual emergence of mankind from a gross and sanguinary mode of sustenance the semite has led the way he has led as it were a symbolic embargo upon the beast typical the beast of beasts with the instinct of the true mystic he selected for exemption from such cannibal feasts the creature which appeals to both sides of the higher vegetarian ethic the pig is at once the creature whose helplessness most moves our pity and whose ugliness most repels our taste it would be foolish to affirm that no difficulty arises out of the different stages of moral evolution in which the different races find themselves thus it is constantly said and such things are not said without some excuse in document or incident that followers of the prophet have specialized in the arts of war and have come into a contact not invariably friendly with those hindus of india who have specialized in the arts of peace in the same way the hindus it must be confessed have been almost as much in advance of islam in the question of meat as islam is in advance of christianity in the matter of drink it must be remembered again and again ladies and gentlemen that every allegation we have of any difference between hindu and moslem comes through a christian channel and is therefore tainted evidence but in this matter even can we not see the perils of disregarding such plain danger signals as the veto on pork did not an empire nearly slip out of our hands because our hands were greased with cow fat and did not the well of kaunpur brim with blood instead of water because we would not listen to the instinct of the oriental about the shedding of sacred blood but if it be proposed with whatever graduation to approach that repudiation of flesh food which buddhism mainly and islam partly recommends it will always be asked by those who hate the very vision of progress where do you draw the line may i eat oysters may i eat eggs may i drink milk you may you may eat or drink anything essential to your stage of evolution so long as you are evolving toward a clearer and cleaner ideal of bodily life if he said gravely i may employ a phrase of flippancy i would say that you may eat six dozen oysters to-day but i should strongly advise five dozen oysters to-morrow for how else has all progress in public or private manners been achieved would not the primitive cannibals be surprised at the strange distinction we draw between men and beasts all historians pay high honor to the huguenots and the great huguenot prince henri quatre none need deny that his aspiration that every frenchman should have a chicken in his pot was for the period a high aspiration it is no disrespect to him that we mounting to higher levels and looking down longer perspectives consider the chicken and this august march of discovery passes figures higher than that of henry of navarre i shall always have a high place as islam has always given a high place to that figure mythical or no which we find presiding over the foundations of christianity i cannot doubt that the fable incredible and revolting otherwise which records the rush of swine into the sea 
was an allegory of his early realization that a spirit, evil indeed, does reside in all animals in so far as they tempt us to devour them. I cannot doubt that the prodigal leaving his sins among the swine is another illustration of the great thesis of the prophet of the moon. But here also progress and relativity are relentless in their advance, and not a few of us may have risen today to the point of regretting that the joyful sounds around the return of the prodigal should be marred by the moaning of a calf. For the rest, he who asks us whither we go knows not the meaning of progress. If we come at last to live on light, as men said of the chameleon, if some cosmic magic closed to us now, as radium was but recently closed, allows us to transmute the very metals into flesh without breaking into the bloody house of life, we shall know these things when we have achieved them. It is enough for us now if we have achieved a spiritual station, in which at least the living head we lop has not eyes to reproach us, and the herbs we gather cannot cry against our cruelty like the mandrake. Lord Ivywood resumed his seat, his colorless lips still moving. By some previous arrangement, probably, Mr. Levison rose to move a motion about vegetarianism. Mr. Levison was of opinion that the Jewish and Moslem veto on pork had been the origin of vegetarianism. He thought it was a great step, and showed how progressive the creed could be. He thought the persecution of the Hindus by Muslims had probably been much exaggerated. He thought our experience in the Indian mutiny showed we considered the feeling of Easterners too little in such matters. He thought vegetarianism in some ways an advance on Orthodox Christianity. He thought we must be ready for yet further advances, and he sat down. And as he had said precisely, clause by clause, everything that Lord Ivywood had said, it is needless to say that that nobleman afterward congratulated him on the boldness and originality of his brilliant speech. At a similar sort of preconcerted signal, Hibbs, however, rose rather vaguely to his feet to second the motion. He rather prided himself on being a man of few words in the vocal sense. He was no orator as Brutus was. It was only with pen in hand, in an office lined with works of reference, that he could feel that sense of confused responsibility that was the one pleasure of his life. But on this occasion he was brighter than usual, partly because he liked being in a lord's house, partly because he had never tasted champagne before, and he felt as if it agreed with him, partly because he saw in the subject of progress an infinite opportunity of splitting hairs. Whatever, said Hibbs, with a solemn cough, Whatever we may think of the old belief that Moslems have differed from Buddhism in a regrettable way, there can be no doubt the responsibility lay with the Christian churches. Had the free churches put their foot down and met Messrs. Opelstein's demand, we should have heard nothing of these old differences between one belief and another. As it was, it reminded him of Napoleon. He gave his own opinion for what it was worth, but he was not afraid to say at any cost, even there and in that company, that this business of Asiatic vegetation had occupied less of the time of the Wesleyan Conference than it should have done. He would be the last to say, of course, that anyone was in any sense to blame. 
They all knew Dr. Kuhn's qualifications. They all knew as well as he did that a more strenuous social worker than Charles Chatter had never rallied the forces of progress. But that which was not really an indiscretion might be represented as an indiscretion, and perhaps we had had enough of that just lately. It was all very well to talk about coffee, but it should be remembered, with no disrespect to those in Canada to whom we owe so much, that all that happened before 1891. No one had less desire to offend our ritualistic friends than he did, but he had no hesitation in saying that the question was a question that could be asked, and though no doubt, from one point of view, the goats... Lady Joan moved sharply in her chair as if gripped by sudden pain, and indeed she had suddenly felt the chronic and recurrent pain of her life. She was brave about bodily pain, as are most women, even luxurious women, but the torment that from time to time returned and tore her was one to which many philosophical names have been given, but no name so philosophical as boredom. She felt she could not stand a minute more of Mr. Hibbs. She felt she would die if she heard about the goats, from one or any point of view. She slipped from her chair and somehow slid round the corner in pretense of seeking one of the tables of refreshment in the new wing. She was soon among the new oriental apartments, now almost completed. But she took no refreshments, though attenuated tables could still be found here and there. She threw herself on an ottoman and stared toward the empty and elfin turret chamber, in which Ivywood had made her understand that he also could thirst for beauty and desire to be at peace. He certainly had a poetry of his own, after all, a poetry that never touched earth, the poetry of Shelley rather than Shakespeare. His phrase about the fairy turret was true. It did look like the end of the world. It did seem to teach her that there is always some serene limit at last. She started and half rose on her elbow with a small laugh. A dog of ludicrous but familiar appearance came shuffling toward her, and she lifted herself in the act of lifting him. She also lifted her head and saw something that seemed to her, in a sense more Christian and catastrophic, very like the end of the world. End of chapter 11